0: Hi folks, welcome to episode 113 of the Epochs of the Load Seaters. I'm joined by Bo, and today we're going to be talking about a meddlesome priest. Uh, I don't actually know much about Thomas Beckett, I just know that he was a real pain in Henry II's arse, to the point where it was like, look, just someone deal with him. And then, uh, spoiler alert, he gets his head cut up by four knights who are like, yeah, we have swords. Our king wants us to deal with this guy. Well, it looks like a nail, you know? (laughs) Um... So that's about all I know. I just know, you know, the, the very basic surface knowledge of, of Thomas Beckett. Um but he was quite a towering figure in his day, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, I would say his murder is one of the most infamous murders in the Middle Ages. One of the most famous murders in English history.
0: And the more I learn about Thomas Beckett, the more I think, well. Uh. <laughs> well,
1: I'll try you and see t- he
0: seems like a real pain in the wrist.
1: <laughs> I'll tell the story and see what people think. Um both the parties, I Henry the Second yeah. and Beckett himself, um, seems to have been at fault at various points, and yeah. uh, got stubborn about it. Yeah, but I'll tell the story and uh, see what people out there make of it. Okay, um, I haven't really got strong feelings one way or another. Hmm. I think both are sort of uh, to blame at right, certain okay. points. Um, but yeah, I mean just to try and um, uh, set the set the the, the tone here. I mean he was uh, a nobody really, he was, his father was sort of a middling merchant type right. from London. He was born in London and his parents, they had some money, they had more than one house mm. but that was it. They were low born, I mean their surname was Beckett. Mm. Um, and he goes on to be the second most powerful man in the country after the king, easily. Mm. I mean he goes on to be an archbishop, you know, one of the princes of the church. Goes on to, you know, um, converse with kings and popes, I mean, and uh, you know, he goes on to be a saint. He et- goes on to have a, a cult about him.
0: Any Americans watching might want to wonder what was class mobility
1: like in feudal England. It turns out it was possible. Yeah, at different points, actually, people have said because all this takes place in the 12th century, mm-hmm. um, people said that the 12th century, the, the 10th, 11th, and 12th century were more. Sort of fluid mm. class mobility. Then, in later centuries, to some degree, that might be true. Um, so, for example, there was a figure Roger of Salisbury, fifty years before this, under the reign of Henry the <coughs> First, who had a similar sort of story. He was kind of a nobody, mm. and he wrote, was he rose to be sort of Chancellor mm. of England, sort of one of the most powerful men in the in the country. Um, so, like in the 14th or 15th century That wouldn't Wouldn't have happened As much Mm. Um, Mm. uh, But then I suppose There are examples Like Thomas Cromwell Not Oliver Cromwell Thomas Cromwell (coughs) Under the age of Henry VIII He was sort of Fairly famously (coughs) Essentially A nobody Yeah Um, So it was possible Mm. Yeah It was possible You had to
0: be a man Of outstanding talents
1: Well that's the thing That's why Thomas Beckett I think is a Fascinating (coughs) character Where we've done A few people around Henry II now Yeah haven't we? We've done Eleanor yeah. of Aquitaine and we've done William Marshall. Mm. I thought we'd do the story of Beckett because it also, it's not just a story of um, a king and his troublesome, meddlesome priest. Uh, that's a, a wrong quote. I'll talk about that in later. Oh really? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, it's also a story on some, to some degree about church and state, about <clears throat> the nature of government, yeah. about the nature of the king's relationship with the church. Yeah. Nature foreshadowing Pope of Brexit. And Rome. Uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> could say something like that. I'm just i I'm just joking. <laughs> if you insist. But, but
0: <laughs> I don't think it's that
1: unrealistic actually, but
0: well, it's not it's the, the same impulse, right?
1: Yeah. That governs about, it. Yeah. But I'll let you I'll let you correct me uh, later. <laughs> um well one thing to say is that it's not uh all that uncommon for Archbishops of Canterbury to come to a sticky end. It's quite a few that have. Be honest. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, William Lord, um, in the age of Charles I and Cromwell, or 1645, 17th century. Mm. He was he was executed. Um, Thomas uh, Cranmer, one of uh, Henry VIII's archbishops, he had his head lopped off in tow- in the uh, in the Tower. Uh, Simon Sudbury during the age of the Peasants' Revolt. Mm he had his head cut off by peasants <laughs> just by peasants and a mob with a, a a bread knife they got him um and there was there's, there's actually quite a few even from long before the norman invasion so we've had archbishops <laughs> of canterbury since
0: uh i'm not making any comment because i genuinely loathe the current archbishop yeah, of canterbury yeah
1: yeah so i did not <laughs> i don't want to make any comment on that yeah no direct <laughs> references to what may or may not happen in our yep. in our time, but um, <clears throat> yeah, the idea that the Archbishop of Canterbury might come to a, a sticky end—it has uh, precedent. But, th- but this is um, this is sort of uh, quite a shocking murder, really. Mm. Um, so to say that you, you've already done the spoiler alert, although anyone that's ever heard of Beckett I mean, knows it was, it
0: was only eight hundred years ago, and he's only yeah. famous yeah. for being murdered by Henry. Mm. So I mean, I felt it wasn't too much of a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
1: And it's a really brutal one as well. Yeah. Like, you know, like Thomas Cranmer was put on trial by mm. the state and sort of formally, sort of legally executed. Mm. This is just like a... It's like a hit squad. Uh, yeah. It's yeah.
0: literally like a, a royal hit squad. A couple
1: of knights go out there and just chop them up. A murder most horrid. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Um, okay. So uh, just talk, if I can, quickly talk a little bit about Henry II. Yep. Um, That he, where we've discussed before the monarchy and that when the Norman invasion happened, there was an old prophecy from the confessor that the England would never be, that the the green tree of England, as a metaphor, Hmm. would never be one again until um, certain lineages were put back on the throne. Right. And you can sort of say that with Henry II, or people did, um, that the various parts of the split trunk the Tree of England. They were sort of rejoined, um, brought back together by Henry II. And he had sort of a fairly, um, really quite amazing lineage. You know, on his mother's side, he's, he's, he's the great grandson of William the Conqueror. Mm. You know, his mother was the Empress Matilda, who was the granddaughter of William the Conqueror, mm. daughter of Henry I. And on his father's side, they're sort of the Counts of Anjou was his father, Geoffrey of Anjou, who had the nickname Plantagenet, um, so in all sorts of ways, even though he's not the son of a king, because that was one of the things you, some people could level against him in his mm. life, even so might got this great empire, that much later was called the Angevin Empire, not during its time was it called the Angevin Empire, that stretches from, you know, Stirling at its m- most extreme extent, He conquered big chunks of Ireland. Mm. Uh, and all the way down through Aquitaine by marriage, all the yeah, way down to the, to the Pyrenees, Pyrenees. Yeah. But he wasn't the son of a king though <laughs> But nor was Charlemagne A well, lot of great men weren't Right, <coughs> right uh, But he was a little bit, people have said, some historians have said it's a bit of armchair psychology He was a little bit insecure in his power, despite how massive it was Because yeah, We might call it an empire, but it was very, very wow. loose it's not really right to call it an empire. It, they're very, very loose things.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, especially in a feudal domain, it's it's much more nuanced than an empire. Frankly, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is one of the um, critiques that uh, Western uh, political philosophers would level against the Turks. They they genuinely had an empire where the entire thing was centralised in the Sultan, and the Sultan would put uh, satraps or whatever they called them. Uh, in various areas and they were completely beholden to him and the entire army was beholden to the sultan so this takes on the aspect of a proper empire and they called that tyranny uh, because it looked tyrannical whereas in feudal europe it was very much a patchwork of local loyalties bound up by feudal oaths religious oaths to ultimately the king at the top and so henry has claimed to lots and lots of obligation from these people but they could at any time. So, you know, I'm breaking this oath for whatever reason. And uh, I have my own men. I have my own army. I have my own money. And now it's a big war. Uh, literally the right of feud. Um, so to call it an empire, it's not accurate. But I, yeah. you, you, <clears throat> you see what people are trying to say. It's saying political influence. There's a kind of political faction, you know. Yeah, so.
1: yeah but, you know, like the lords of the border countries or in yeah. lowland Scotland and the uh, the magnates of of the, the aquitaine mm. it's not like they all see rem or london as like the capital yeah. of their empire it doesn't it wasn't like that and, and yeah.
0: exercising authority over like these people was probably a, a massive nightmare
1: to be honest you know it was, yeah, well, probably, it, was. Yeah. it definitely was because
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of things couldn't just be done by like fiat you know it'd have to have been done by persuasion and so Anyway, not not a proper empire, sort
1: so of where thing. Henry the Second was born to be a Count of Anjou mm. and then um through his mother, claims England, fights for it, wins it, mar- marries Eleanor of Aquitaine. then on top of that, he has is quite successful in war in the early mm. part of his life as well. gets a bit lucky mm. um at different points in time, it's more or less easy to win victories, right. Uh, for example, maybe oh, yeah. Alexander had a relatively easy go of it just when he was born. Maybe the original uh, Muslim invasion spreading out from Arabia had a relatively easy time of it because the world was at a weak end. Well, w- well, the- we 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 know that they definitely did. Right, right. Seems like Henry II <coughs> benef- benefited from that, so he sort of mm. invaded Brittany, invaded bi- invaded big parts of Wales. Like would mm. say, there was loads of unrest around Leinster in Ireland. He was able to sort of effectively take advantage of it. Where the Scots had come all the way down into Northern England, mm. they were sort of at a weak ebb and he was able to take advantage of that. Mm. So he just, he's born at the right time, the right place, like massively. Mm. Um, and so it looked like, well, it was the case that he was sort of, um, born to have this sort of amazing run of luck in all sorts of ways. Because one, one thing about Henry, I never
0: viewed him as any kind of uh, genius in this regard. Right. I mean, you know, he wins victories, but they don't seem, they're not spectacular victories. You know, they're not like, you know, Hannibal or Alexander or Napoleon. Oh, right.
1: okay, That's you know. what you're
0: saying. He, like you say, he's, he's born at a good time and place, uh, and he's capable of the job. He's sufficient for the job, but, you know, he's, he's not one of these men who's setting the world on fire, in my view.
1: I see what you're saying, yeah. He never went on crusade, old Henry II. Hmm. He never launched a giant war against Fred- Frederick Barbarossa, the other most powerful man in Europe. The mm. two most powerful men in Europe easily are Henry Plantagenet, Henry mm. II, and Frederick Barbarossa, the, the Holy Roman em- Emperor, or the guy that is sort of—it's um, not. There's no such thing as Germany, but there's loads and loads of German states, yeah. and he sort of controls a lot of that. He's the emperor of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And there's a, a, an anti-Pope at this point, There's the Pope, Alexander III, mm. but there are sort of anti-Popes of well, Victor in, IV. In France or something. Uh, well, in Frederick Barbosa's land. Oh, right, Frederick right. Barbosa doesn't like Alexander III. So right. the Pope, Alexander III, this will come up in a bit later. Yeah. And Frederick and Barbosa are absolutely at odds with each other. Frederick Barbosa's like, no, I, I, I don't like you, Alexander III. I picked this other guy. He's the real Pope now. And Rome is sort of like, well, wait, we don't accept that. Oh, we're going to have another schism, a schism within a schism now, because the great schism between East and West had already happened. Yeah. Um, the schisms all the way down. Yeah. We're just going to keep schisming here. Mm. Um, so, okay, let's start on um, Thomas Beckett's life. Yes. Because what Henry II wanted is someone to be his chancellor and his archbishop who he could just completely control, who would just absolutely be his puppet, be his man. Mm. That's what he's after. Um and so he thinks he, he hopes he'll get it in Beckett. Why don't I hire a commoner for the job? Yeah. He'll surely not have loads of connections and be a real pain in my rear. Not have the sort of chutzpah to mm. go his go his own way, be mm. his own man. So mean, almost, j- yeah.
0: just a thing. Like yeah. you can, class dis- class differentials are important in this era. And you can see how Henry, who his whole life is born to rule and knows he's going to rule, You know, even if he's not directly the son of a king, I mean, you can't have the level of aristocratic lineage that he has and not expect to rule something. Mm. Uh, And Thomas Beckett, a plebeian, a peasant, just, you know, whose father does peasant things. Mm. There's no question. There's no contest. You're you're Henry, you don't even think about it. You think, well, obviously.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: He's a peasant. Yeah. I mean, I literally have thousands of knights. (laughs) I literally have a giant empire that stretches the length of Europe. What do you want? You
1: know? And um, just to try and set the tone on how sort of low-born Beckett was. Uh, he was low-born absolutely in terms of just sort of blood. Yeah. Like how blue blood, blue-blooded he was. But his family had some money. They weren't poor. No. Uh, they weren't peasants. Like I say, his father was a merchant to the point where they had more than one home. Mm. But not much more than that. He wasn't fabulously rich. Yeah. But he was rich enough, and he was their only son, um, to send him to sort of quite a good school. Mm. Um, even then, they had sort of kind of the equivalent of a grammar school, or they were all sort of church schools. Mm. Back then, in the 12th century, nearly all education was just church yeah. education. That's just the way it was. Yeah. Um, so they had just enough money just to cut ahead a slightly, a few years ahead, um, to give you an idea of maybe their station of the Becketts. His father sort of comes upon hard times. Mm. There's a fire in London, not the Great Fire of London. There's been quite a few fires in London. And um Beckett's father's houses, I think even his warehouses burned down, he sort of loses nearly all his money. And he has to go to work for another big merchant house in London. Right. So they weren't they were Kind of rich ish, but not completely independently wealthy, not right. Ra- I mean, what not we, not we call middle class English. now, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's you a know, complete the, anachronism, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, something, like it, that. <clears> something like that.
0: That's why I say what we would call now. Yeah. yeah. If, you know, they didn't have that something then. But, like that. but it does go to show you that, um, the, again, like one of the. I, I argue with Americans, Adam and Sitch, a lot about <laughs> uh, feudalism in Europe and especially in England, because they don't seem to understand that the peasants were free, you know, as in they were free to gather their own wealth to maintain their own property and to enlarge their own possessions. And Thomas Beckett's father's a good example of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would it would depend exactly where and when sure. you're saying that. So sort of after the Black Death, which is way right after this, because well, the Black Death in Britain is thirteen forty eight to yeah. forty nine, when when um yeah, a lot of serfdom is done away with at mm-hmm. that point. But still, yeah. Yeah, they weren't they weren't, they weren't slaves. slaves. And that's yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. The
0: Americans just can't understand. Well, how, do, how does a medieval peasant earn money? Well, however he likes. You know, I mean, a lot of the time your your options will be limited. You know, so it'll be like, it'll be practical to work on the land or it'll be practical to be a merchant or something. But you can do well out of these things. You can make money. You can buy two homes. You know, you can send your, children to private schools you know it's, it, it doesn't mean that you're just you know eating dirt all the time you know it's 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 a lot more complicated <laughs> I don't know why
1: you argue with Adam and
0: Sitch I like Adam and Sitch they're yeah. just American liberals
1: yeah unlet- un- unlettered <laughs>
0: that, that's fair unlettered is fair
1: but they are could yeah. I be more condescending <laughs> unread on, on
0: these subjects there, that is true
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> So uh, <laughs> Beckett's early life. Then uh, he does go to um, uh, quite a good school, um, and from there, though, he does have to work. and mm. uh, They're not independently wealthy, and it seems that well, what what he eventually gets at some point, uh, he works for one of the big merchant houses, one of the big guilds in London. Eventually, gets a position when he's in his sort of mid twenties in the house, the household. Of the Archbishop of Canterbury, a Theobald hmm. And now we don't have a fantastic amount of detail That uh, some, a modern historian would really like um, About how the next few years happen But all you can infer, you can certainly infer That he's just really capable, yeah, really a- charismatic Because Theobald quite quickly raises him very high hmm. Starts giving him positions within the ecclesiastical hierarchy starts making him sort of under deacons of various mm. churches around the place. Starts giving him administration roles, sends him on an embassy to Rome.
0: I can't help but feel that, um, when you're surrounded by people who often are not educated and may not be the smartest tools in the box, but when you get this well-educated, quite bright chap come along and say, yeah, I can do that. Brilliant. That, that, and that, and that I need all this done. You know, I can completely see, how this would uh, unlock doors, uh, open doors for Thomas Backett.
1: I think it's fair to describe him as a fixer. Mm. You've got a task, mm. you've got a project. You need a capable project manager. Yeah. Oh, him. He gets things done. Yeah. He just gets things done.
0: Oh, he's smart, educated, so literate.
1: That will take you a long way in life, and always has. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's pe- it's, but especially <laughs> now. Yeah. When
0: you know, I mean, when when you know, more than half the population has been to university. It's less of an
1: important. Uh, thing. But back then, you yeah, know, this, this guy's pretty unique. Just before he sort of starts doing that sort of thing, like going on an embassy to Rome on behalf mm. of the Archbishop of Canterbury, must say, uh, he Theobald even sends him to Paris to do some more learning, some mm. more book learning. <laughs> he goes to Bologna at one point, I believe, uh, to the university there. Mm. And he's often described as worldly... And not a great scholar, although he was scholarly on some level. He mm. was certainly educated, mm. obviously completely literate, but he wasn't sort of a great Latinist. Mm. He, he wasn't considered, um, you know, one of the leading lights of Scholasticism or anything. No, no. So, like later, there were lots of letters that survive, mm. and uh, historians look back on they say he, he uh, Beckett must have dictated that he wasn't that good a writer. Mm. However, you couldn't say he was stupid, you couldn't say he was uneducated or anything like that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so it seems through the next few years, he um, is sort of a fairly meteoric rise because by the time he's in his early thirties, he holds lots and lots and lots of offices Mm. in the state. He's sort of, um, he's one of the most important people in the the structure of power at Canterbury. He's like one of the deacons of Canterbury. Mm which is very very powerful and mm. a man in his sort of early 30s mid 30s um it just speaks of uh, he's he's been he's been singled out
0: and i i think it's important to emphasize the power of the church at this time as well um, oh, yeah. because when That's we say deacon clear. people think oh it's just some guy in a robe who has no claim on me whatsoever mm. uh, that certainly was not the case in 12th century england uh, the church was a massive, powerful institution that was responsible for, like you said, education, but it was also responsible for arms, for feeding the poor, for the destitute. You know, um, in all matters spiritual, the church was the authority. And mm. people, people viewed religion in the same way that we view science. And so people would take the dictates of the priests to be the same way that we take it on faith that the 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 planets around and they circle around the sun and the, you know like and gravity operates and electrons and all these things they view religion in exactly the same way and so this gives the church the sort of power that science has now you know so just mm. to just to make because this uh, honestly moderns just do not understand the influence that the church wielded mm. in the ancient world because it just doesn't in the modern world
1: yeah no, that's a very very good point they they barely had a state as we know it mm. Uh, most of the machinery of the state, if you, you can't really call it that, but it's- It's very primitive. Yeah. And lots and lots of it is based around the church mm. and uh, ecclesiastical sort of frameworks. Mm. You know, like the Sea of Canterbury or the Sea of York. Mm. They're sort of, they're, they're a, a legal and spiritual authority. Mm. The main one, other than the crown itself. Yeah.
0: Uh, and you know, all of these things are underpinned by God Almighty.
1: Of course, there's no sort of uh, welfare state or anything like that. There's no like police. No, right? No, there's no. no. There's hardly anything. Yeah, really. Like all education, there's no. There's not really any hospitals as we know them. No. Again, anything like that, it's all done by the church. Yeah, it's all done by the church. It's it's such
0: an important so, social and political institution that to say Thomas Beckett has risen from nothing to become a deacon of Canterbury. Mm. It like we are, I mean,
1: it's impressive, right? Yeah, it, It says he had a character, an amazing character.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm just trying to think of a modern, it's, it's like him being like the, the president of like Oxford university or something you know, the modern era, you know, this, this uh, he's come out of nowhere. He's in his early thirties and he's in charge of one of the most prestigious institutions in the entire country, you know, yeah. recognized across Christendom,
1: mm. you know?
0: So it's, it's not, it's no small thing as mm. what We're trying to emphasize here.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it just says that he, um, is capable on all sorts of levels. Mm. And anyway, the king he catches the king's eye at some well, point. Just a quick thing. I think,
0: just a thing, where you say he's a fixer, hmm. I think that's a great, that, that's that been lingering in my mind since you said it. This is a great way of putting it because, as you say, he's not necessarily innovating on doctrine or, you know, like you say, he's not a scholar necessarily, although obviously he's literate. But the, he, the there are these kinds of men all throughout history and even, you know, all, all throughout the modern era where you just rely on them to get things done and he's clearly like getting a lot of things done for a lot of people and pulling in a lot of threads to himself. You know, he's Mm. becoming a nexus, you know, where people are relying on him. And that's a very powerful thing to accrue.
1: Yeah. And he's not, as I mentioned, um, he's not just one of the deacons at Canterbury. Mm. He's got power over loads and loads of different, um, smaller Mm. um, uh, church estates and things Mm. all over the country. And he's going to have a
0: huge level of fame. At this point fame again is something in the modern era we don't really understand from what it was like in previous eras because actually most people weren't famous even the people who are important weren't famous Mm. and you actually would know someone by their rank rather than their name but thomas beckett may well have had a name that preceded him Mm. right Mm. as in like you you would know the king of hungary or something you wouldn't necessarily know the name of the king of hungary but um and so, you know, you wouldn't know who the, the deacon of the next church was, you know, two two counties over. You wouldn't know these things. Mm. You know, and so it's it's just you know, Thomas Beckett, the fact that his name has come down to us so far shows that it, it like he's an important man and probably had a, a level
1: of I mean, notoriety, maybe we'll call it. I don't know. But, well by the end Well, by the end he's yeah. like his memory, the cult of St. Thomas is like mm. in in Spain, yeah. it's in Sicily. Uh it, he was Canterbury became arguably the third or fourth most important mm. point of pilgrimage in Western Europe. Or no, in all of Christendom. Mm. Um, there was not Canterbury Cathedral hadn't really been a prominent place for pilgrims to go to until after the mm. murder and canonization of Becket. Yeah. And then it went the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, mm. um, St. Peter's in Rome, and then either. Santiago de Compostela or Canterbury. Yeah. It became that important. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miracles were said to have happened. Oh, wow. Um, because of St. Thomas. Um, <laughs> far better for me to so, question that. So, yeah, right. so his name went far <laughs> yeah. and wide in the end, absolutely. But already, yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah. would have had some sort of name recognition. So that, that,
0: and, and again, just in the medieval era, that's a strange thing. For most, you know, most people didn't have a name recognition. You know, the number of celebrities that people know now is way, way higher than what we would call celebrities in this time and place. So it's it's just again very different world, is what I'm trying to emphasise.
1: One point in by one point by the 1150s, uh, mm. uh, like I say, he catches the king's eye. Mm. Henry himself sees him, and um, Theobald, the old archbishop, um, you know impresses upon the king that he is a, he's really good at his job. Mm. He might not be uh the greatest Latinist. Sure. But I say he's a fixer. And Henry just likes the cut of his jib. Anyway, mm. makes him Chancellor.
0: No small thing. Well, you're <laughs> sort of argue- <laughs> you're,
1: in a secular sense, you're pretty much the most powerful man in the country, yeah. other than the king.
0: You you essentially control like
1: the finances, right? You're you're a, a clerk of the king, but just the first one. Yeah. It's something like a prime minister. Again, that's mm. a complete anachronism and wrong in all sorts of ways. But and a real historian would scoff and roll their eyes at that. But, but, but proportionately, like the
0: sort of power that you're wielding,
1: mm. that's you know, you're yeah. the
0: sort of first interface to the mechanisms of government that the king has, mm. and so it is mm. kind of like a prime minister. I don't know, how you know, that's, I don't think that's an unfair comparison. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway,
1: mm. yeah. Yeah. So. And he's still only sort of, what, in his mid-30s at this point. Um, so, sort of a meteoric rise.
0: Must have a great career
1: ahead of him. Now People, smooth sailing from yeah. this point onwards. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's, there's no downtick from here, surely. But he is very, now he is very, very rich. Um, He sort of can't, almost can't help but become very, very rich. Um Now, quick point just to talk about his relationship, his sort of personal relationship with Henry. Mm. A lot of historians play this up quite a lot. Modern scholars sort of put a bit of cold water on this, that they were best friends. They were absolutely best friends. The sort of slightly older version is that they really were. Mm. It seems that they certainly spend loads of time in each other's company, playing cards, playing chess, going horse riding, doing um, hunting. And it strikes me they probably had quite a strong friendship then. Yeah, definitely.
0: Because why would you spend all of your time? Why would you promote this one guy? Why would you spend all of your time with him if you weren't really
1: friendly with him? Well, the the, the cold water that has been yeah. poured on it is simply that from uh, that the, the two men thought about it differently. So from Thomas's point of view, mm-hmm. they were just best friends and that's the end of the story. But from Henry's point of view, he was like, Yeah, I do like spending time with him and all that sort of thing. We are friends, but still, he's just one of my minions, though, still. Uh, Because, well, the reason why Modern scholars say that is because there's quite a lot of examples of him taking the mickey out of Beckett, humiliating him a bit. So, for example, there's one story where Beckett was wearing a very, very fine robe. Yeah. And Henry... Jokes with him, takes the Mickey out of him, and then says, "Actually, take that off and give it to someone else. Give it to a peasant. Like, calm down, mate. Basically, like that. There's quite a lot of examples of that, right? Where because there's the other thing to mention about Beckett by this point, anyway, in his life, Mm. he loved show, he loved ostentation, he loved Mm. wearing, he loved changing clothes multiple times a day, wearing wearing golden things, jewel encrusted things. Um, The thing is, from Henry's perspective, you can kind of see
0: where this is coming from, right? He's like. You know, take that off. You're embarrassing. You're clearly not born to the purple. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you, you, I realised that at some point you probably had to wear quite plain clothes, and I realize that you're compensating for that now. But it's mm-hmm. kind of embarrassing. Yeah, you know, you, you're showing that you're not one. You know, you're not one of this class. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at eaters.com